The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. Everybody saw him as a high flyer. The club released him at 18 and he's never played again. So somebody would have gone, you know, he's a very talented kid. He's captain of the under 18s, but doesn't get a pro contract. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent and personal development. My name's Coach Yas and I'm a UEFA A license football coach, coach developer and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas and today I've got a very special guest with me. My guest today is Nick Lovett. Good morning, Nick. How are you? Good afternoon, how are you? Yeah, fine. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for being with me today. Um, Nick, just for those that aren't who aren't too familiar with who you are and what you do, would you mind just giving us a bit of a backdrop as to what that is? Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> I'm uh, I'm currently employed by uh, UK Coaching, and I'm I'm head of coaching there. So UK Coaching typically work across all landscapes to do with anybody that helps somebody else to get better at something. So from grassroots community sport, physical activity sector, all the way through to talent and, and high performance sport. And a lot of my work typically is with coaches in the Olympic pathway and and mainly also within the coach development workforce. So working with and supporting the development of coach developers, tutors, mentors, assessors, any of that kind of workforce, but not any individual sport specific, uh, but across the generic world of, of coaching and coach development. Excellent. And, you know, I want to start us uh, off today on today's topic around differences in identifying talent and ability. Um, and I don't know from recent roles that you've also been involved in, you've been involved in, uh, I guess, the talent ID aspect of things, more specifically with the FA. Would you mind just giving us a bit of a background around what that role was and what that entailed? Yeah, sure. So I, I work full time at the FA for... Uh, 14 years in a variety of different roles. And the last uh, I had for three years was a talent identification manager. So there was a couple of different aspects to it, really. One was trying to put in place an education pathway to support the development of scouts particularly, but also coaches to start to understand and think about what talent ID and also to a degree what talent development was. So the coaching pathway exists within football specifically there and it's been in place for years and years, but there was nothing for the scouting network. So what we wanted to do was put in place uh, something very simple as a, as a level one for parents typically, but coaches and scouts to start to consider what it looks like around talent ID. And then uh, a level two, level three, level four, and then latterly a level five pathway for people involved in scouting all the way through to technical directors at clubs so it might have involved uh on a level two course starting to discuss relative age effect or the importance of holistic understanding of players or how to be a scout all the way through to you know level four level five where we're talking about um negotiation skills because technical directors might be involved with discussions with agents and contracts and all of those kind of things. So that was kind of one element of the role. And the other element of the role was looking at the professional development and management of the England Scouting Network 
or talent reporters, as we called them. Uh, my specific focus was at the younger end. So we had across the team, we had responsibility from under 15s, which is the first age group that England have uh, a national team at. On the boys' side, this is uh, all the way through to Gareth and the seniors. So across the team, we did uh, the, the talent ID and coordination co coordination of the of the scouts across all of that. So I would work with the scouts across the whole country, looking at mm, kind of second half of under thirteen year, but mostly under fourteen, to look at right who are the first ninety players we're going to bring into an England camp at under fifteen to start their journey as a as an international or towards being an international player. So we'd work with the scouts to look at, well, where did they go? What did they uh, look for when they were there? What was the processes and kind of, I guess, strategy about how we did it? So, yeah, two main roles, really. One was uh, education and one was uh, support for the talent system across the team. Right, so Nick, you know, we talked there about, you know, uh, some of the stuff that you've done with the England, England groups. Um, I just want to interest trying to get onto the topic of today, you know, identifying the difference between talent and ability. I want to start by maybe getting some definitions or what you perceive to be the difference between talent and ability eventually. But first, what is talent to you and what is ability to you? Yeah, they're, they're really good questions. And um, we spent a lot of time trying to unpick this with the... Uh, the scouts and, and within the education pathway. But what we wanted to try and do really was get beyond what a definition is and just kind of break it down into what it looked like in reality for the for the scouts. So you, you could go out and watch a game. And generally, if you've kind of got a, a reasonable understanding of the sport that you're working in uh, and a background working with it, you could probably identify who the best player was in, in this sense football here. Um, you could probably see who the best player on the pitch was at a particular age group. And we wanted to try and help the scouts get beyond just seeing the best. So um, we used to talk about talent that shouts and talent that whispers, which was from uh, uh, an old book by a guy called uh, George Anders called The Rare Find. And anybody can see the best player. So give you an example, Jude Bellingham, we brought him in when he was under 14 into the England under 15s camps because you could see if when you watched Jude play, he was playing up two or three years at his club, um, physically was, was going really well um, in terms of his own development, off the pitch, articulate, thoughtful, intelligent, inquisitive, good leadership skills. So you like you didn't have to be a genius to work out that, that Jude Bellingham was, was a talent that shouts. But what we wanted to do was try and support the scouts to get beyond this. So what they used to do, and again, this is a fairly kind of similar thing across, um, across talent ID in many different sports, is they would report on what they could see. So you could see technical, tactical, and you could see to a degree physical. But the physical influenced many of the other factors. So if you're watching an under 14 match and we were trying to trying to select for the England under 15s, for example, what you saw was talent there and then, but it would have been influenced based upon a number of different factors. So their physicality linked to their maturation 
or linked to relative age effect. So where they were born in the selection year, that would impact on different things because the 14 year old who has, who has gone through puberty and has got, you know, the quads of a man and is shaving. It's very different to a, a late developer that might not be starting um, kind of their growth and maturation until they're 16, 17. But what mm -hmm. that, 14 year old who's gone through all of that can do on a pitch in terms of high intensity sprints, covering more distance, striking the ball with more power. That influences what you would see in a performance, but that doesn't make the difference long term. And what we wanted to do was try and help scouts not only see that and report on that because that was part of the role, but start to look beyond it. So what did they see from the psychological characteristics of a kid? and start to report on some of those behaviours. And that was a really, really important part. So, you know, you could see the, you know, talent and ability, like you would see it there and then. But what we were actually looking for was potential. And mm. I would argue that, you know, it, it should be called potential ID, which doesn't have a particularly good ring to it, does it, to be honest? But, you know, because that's what you're looking for. And I looked at um, 10... European Championship squads at under 17. And they take 18 to a Euros. Uh, and, I, and I looked at where were those kids now? And at England under 17 level, 30% of those kids were playing in the Premier League. Um, 30 to 40% of them were playing in Championship to League Two. And the other 30% of them were either not playing or in non-league football. So... Mm. What that means really is selecting uh, talent at 16 years of age for the, in, for the under 17s is really difficult because you've just got no idea how their journey is going to take them into different roles. And arguably, we were getting 30% wrong because they're not playing or, or, or in the non-league. The other 30, 40% that are in um, championship down arguably you're probably getting them wrong as well because they're not the ones that are playing in the Premier League week in, week out. And it just shows how really tricky it is because there's so many different factors at play. Mm. So, you know, you talked about you know, potential ID and some of the factors that you might have to consider, obviously, when looking at that. Now, in terms of, I guess, supporting scouts or you know talent reporters however you wish to view mm. them what does that process look like because obviously from that perspective everyone you know you'd argue is somewhat subjective uh, um, yeah. how do you ensure that the there is an alignment in that respect yeah absolutely i think you're bang on i mean th there's a huge amount of subjectivity in it um this was all part of what we were trying to do was to help scouts first of all understand the lens that they see the world through so everybody has a bias of what they like or dislike in a player. So your values and beliefs on what a player may or may not be influences how you view a, a, a game. So if you were a, a, you know, as a player, you might have been a hard-working centre midfielder, box to box that did, you know, lots of uh, big tackles. That's the kind of value that you would then look for in a player you know and the tippy tappy winger that played out wide that never trapped back that would go against your value set of what you thought 
a footballer made. And often those mm. players wouldn't get selected. So we, we had to start with, with really helping uh, the, the scouts think about, well, what do they value in a player? Um, what, what is that bias they go in with? Recognise that bias and then look beyond it to go, right, OK, well, this is the first thing I see. But what else do I now need to see? The other part that then, that then kind of aligns to that is uh, you just have to be clear on what you're looking for. So the England DNA um, was pretty clear for, for us about what we were looking for in a player um, at different stages and across holistically across the whole of their development. So one of our biggest, weakest areas was the lack of understanding around psychology and what it looked like. So we did a load of work with, with the scouts on what was, we, we used this uh, psych uh, matrix called the five C's, which has come from Chris Cushion at Loughborough University or Chris Harwood, maybe Chris Harwood, I think it was. Um, so some evidence-based academic research and we started to say, well, what does commitment or confidence uh, or communication look like on the pitch? So commitment, for example, we'd start to say, right, you know, centre forward that gave the ball away. You know, the ball gets played up to them. They have a poor first touch. The centre half takes it off them. Do they just throw their arms up in the air and blame the person that passed it to them? Or do they chase back to try and get the ball back? And some of those are positive signs of commitment and some of them might be negative signs of commitment. And we would try and collect all of this insight and data as well. But what we were, what we were really keen with the scouts to then do is, is, is get insight and get beyond trying to score players and start to know them. And that's where you really start to understand them. I guess just on, on that front, then, that process in some ways... It's a lot more extensive, which is great, but it's also then potentially more time consuming. How, how, do, you, how do you manage that? Because obviously when you're now looking at assessing players and I guess or scouts assessing players, they've often got, I think, more increasing now, less time to kind of assess a player because they're more conscious about that. Right, is someone else going to notice him? Is someone else going to notice her? Uh, you know, we've got a tight window to play, you know, to kind of make a decision in if that makes sense. Yeah, it was... I, I think you're bang on, and that that rings true for club scouts because of competitive pressure locally. That was less of an issue mm. for the national team. Um, sure. Although saying that, we did we did have a number of uh, of, of challenges around sure. dual nationality, um, yeah. or or kind of triple nationality in some cases. And if you looked at London as a very, um, very cosmopolitan city with many, many different kind of heritages and backgrounds. You know, we'd find that, you know, some kids could play for two, three countries. And, you know, you had many other different countries sniffing around players in London because they knew that as well. So sometimes there was a little bit about that. And, you know, there's, there's a variety of different um, kids that are in the system now. So if you took someone like um, Karamoko Dambele, so Caddy, you know, could play for about two or three different countries beyond just England. And, you know, then there goes a, a process to try and ensure that, yeah, you get him into your setup early, 
um, and you try and show them, you know, this is how we do it. This is what we stand for. This is our values and beliefs as a country and why we believe this is a really good way to do things. Um, and you just hope that you, you treat people well and you do it in the appropriate way. That means that they, they develop an affinity and think, yeah, you know, I feel English. I want to play for England. But definitely at club level, there's there's a lot more pressures, which I think is probably why um, there's a lot more errors being made because there's less insight. However, I think mm. as as the scouting world is is more professionalised and people's understanding of talent uh, increases and, and depths uh, and deepens, I think people will start to make better decisions and hopefully more informed decisions. And that's what we wanted to try and achieve through the education pathway at clubs. Mm. So can okay, you just kind of build on that then? You know, I want to take you back to something you touched on earlier, this idea of uh, potential ID rather than talent ID. So women are looking at that aspect of things. When, when you know, when can we be safe to say that, you know, this person is now a talent and it's not no longer potential? Um, probably when they're 34 and they finish their career. <laughs> sure. So then, at at what stage does that go from being a talent and differentiating that talent from an ability, or is ability part of that? Particular? Yeah, I think ability is what what somebody can and can't do. Um, and typically, you know, the other thing with the scouting network is that they would often tell you what a player couldn't do. You know, they're no good at this. They can't do that. They can't. Well, okay. Well, let's focus on what they can do. You know, if if you did a scouting report on on Messi or Maradona and all the reports came back saying they don't use their right foot. I mean, you put the left foot ain't bad. Um, uh, so you could, you know, you kind of miss out on some of that. Um, yeah, it, I think really, like, and like I said, with the stats around um, around the, the ones that go through to kind of international level, it, it is so difficult. And until they are probably classed as an established international or a, or an established Premier League player. It's very, very difficult because, you know, I know, I know a kid that came through a London Premier League club, was captain pretty much all the way through the, his teenage years, captain of the under-18s. Everybody saw, saw him as a high flyer. The club released him at 18 and he's never played again. So somebody would have gone, you know, he's a very talented kid. He's captain of the under-18s but it doesn't get a pro contract or there's a lot of players that would get, you know, one or two year pro contracts and then disappear out the system. So I think until you've probably played uh, and established yourself at first team level, you know, you're, you're just a talented kid um, or somebody with talent. And, look, you know, clearly we can't do it at the moment, but you could probably go and sit in a pub and have a football conversation with, with, with 10 different people and everyone would tell you they had a trial here. They were good enough to do this. You know, everyone's got a football story, right? Um, but until you've gone, right, I've played 50 Premier League games, you could go, right, I'm, I'm established as a, as a Premier League player. But that will vary from, you know, everybody will have different definitions. One of the things that was crucial for, for us that we were looking for, uh, again, from some of the research, was we were looking at, at players that have made their and playing uh, first-team football by 19 they were the ones that went on to play senior Premier League football. So if you didn't make first team level by 19, typically you, you didn't often go on and do it. Now, there's always outliers uh, that are in the system. 
but that that first team football could be out on loan somewhere um or or it could be in your kind of parent club but if if they were still playing academy football or just in the 21s or 23s and not making that step up it was a much harder leap to make so again there's lots of kind of evidence around these kind of things that will um will influence people's thinking but every every club rightly has their own view and their own way of doing it uh but and we had different pressures at national level to, to clubs sure and obviously like, understandably so because obviously you're not you're only if anything you're only competing with potentially other nations um which potentially limits to the amount of clubs i just want to kind of take you back to the you know the the actual talent id aspect of things and when you're now looking at I think more generically, it'd be very interesting. Obviously, you said that the England squads and the initial part of that was trying to get them in under 15s, get the, get their first, um, I guess, experiences at that level. But just generically now, with the, you know, with the whole talent ID space, what would you say are some of the major considerations and differences we might need to consider when we're looking at, uh, I guess, across the different phases? So, kind of working in the foundation phase, youth development phase, and professional development phase, what would you say are some of the key, uh, from your experiences anyway? differences and consideration that should be made at those those stages of development yeah the, i guess if you took the um the fa's four corner model and said right that's a holistic view of kids um across all of their yeah. kind of key areas i guess in terms of their development um you you have to consider all of those and arguably the differentiator long term is the bit between the years. So you could be um, average technically and tactically and absolutely nailed on psychologically and have a professional career, but you probably can't be average psychologically and amazing technically, tactically, because you just won't go the distance. Because the journey to get to being elite in anything, and I see this now across you know, across 30 different sports, the journey to become elite in anything is really hard. There's, you know, there's so many sacrifices that you have to make. You have to be ruthless. You have to be selfish. And high performance is, is a mindset, is an attitude. It's a behavior that you have. And it is really difficult. So, you know, if you're 14, 15 in that youth development phase, and you start to see all your mates going out to parties and all of this kind of stuff. To say no, I'm not doing that. I, you know, I need to focus on this. is really hard, right? Because peer pressure is a big thing, and fitting in and being part of a tribe of, of people is crucial for for teenagers. And it's really, really difficult. So ultimately, you can you can have a career if you're nailed on psychologically and good enough technically tactically you don't have to be out of this world technically tactically but you can be good enough and nailed on site so if you took someone like gary neville you know god knows how many games he played for man united hundreds but and arguably definitely not the best technician or or tactical player but absolutely nailed on from a high performance mindset so th that's more important the further you get through the pathway um I think certainly the little little ones in the foundation phase, the best thing that you're looking for is just a love of the game. Um, 
someone that is mm. is just desperate to play all the time wants to you know they don't they don't see it as as practice they just see it as play because they love doing it um you know i think if you you could look at a group of of eight-year-old kids but again there's loads of different factors that we need to start to consider from a, a physical perspective that starts to skew things or, or generally an age perspective so every kid has a chronological age as per their you know the date of birth on their birth certificate but uh you know you might have an august born kid and they could be in the same group as a kid that was born 11 months before them in september because Club football, school football is all done by academic year. If you think about that kid, mm. you know, when that August born was literally being born, that September born kid was learning to walk. And and, and that could be a big difference. Yeah. That means they could be a lot bigger, a lot stronger. And again, that kind of accentuates as you go through the pathway and, and different people hit maturation at different stages. Um, so those, that age factor there, and equally, you know, you'll, you'll know of um, parents that take their, uh, their kids to soccer tops from the age of 18 months, um, you know, or little kickers or any of these kind of like, you know. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Young infant football environments. And if I put my six-year-old, my six-year-old boy now, and if I put him alongside a six-year-old kid that had done four years of soccer tops, and my son, you know, like he's done three months of football practice, you know, which kid's going to be better? The one that's done it for four years or the one that has just started? So again, you know, having an understanding of what those kids have been doing in their football again, is really important because it might skew you to think other things. But definitely a love of the game, just, just you know, love scoring, love stopping goals, love being part of football. That's absolutely what we should be encouraging uh, and looking for within that foundation phase. You know, we can get skewed by, again, some of those physical early factors that, uh, that influence whether you think somebody's talented or not just because their load's bigger. And actually, you know, if you look at a there's a picture of um, Lionel Messi in, in one of his teams at Argentina, uh, or, or sorry, a, a kid's team when he's just started playing. Like he is literally head and shoulders yeah. smaller than some of those other kids. Ah, it's, it's frightening, yeah. isn't it? But, but I mean, you know, who are you going to pick? <laughs> like now that we know it, you pick him, wouldn't you? Um, but so many kids get ruled out young because they don't show uh, either a physical advantage or um, a technical advantage but they might have played they might have you know not played anywhere near as long as other kids and then when you get into those uh, mm. kind of teenage years youth development phase stuff again what you're looking for really for me the, the big thing I'm interested in is you know who are the kids that are motivated to learn that want to get better that ask good questions that go out and practice the stuff 
um, either that's a super strength that they want to nail or practice some of their weaknesses, you know, and the kids that report back and tell you about that kind of stuff. That's the stuff I think that's really interesting for uh, coaches and scouts to start to log and go, ah, oh, right, okay, you know, that's that's the one. That kid that stays out after practice to do more on their own, these are the factors that show um, drive, motivation, growth mindset, um, adaptability, resilience, you know, those that can deal with change and setbacks. All of those kind of factors are really important. And again, it's, it's making sure that coaches don't miss those when they get caught up thinking, well, you know, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't cover the pitch. You know, he doesn't get about pitch. And I used to hear it all the time in the release retention meetings at, you know, 11, 12 year olds. Well, he doesn't cover, he doesn't get a cramp. He, he doesn't get around the pitch. That was often like, does it? I'm like, well, what do you mean he doesn't get around the pitch? It's like, it's not a cross country ch uh, championship. What do you, and, and you've put them on an under yeah. 18 pitch. So what are you expecting when they're, you know, really little physically? So there's all of these kind of different factors. The growth and maturation thing kicks in massively in that YDP phase and, and probably is a bit of a mask to tell you whether someone is, is talented or not. Mm. We have to be patient and wait for them to come out the other side of it. And that's when you start to know, you know, really about them and what they're like. So I did some, I did some interviews with players before under 21 championship and John Stones was one of them. And uh so i spent about, about an hour and a half with john and then i went and met his parents uh to try and kind of triangulate and get some different views and john uh came through at barnsley so uh you know a, a lower unfashionable club compared to a champions league one maybe um and under 12 to under 16 john said he was a he was a dot he was a late developer and he played down a year group because he was so small um, and he said, I, he said, I used to, you know, come home and cry when I was in the under 16s because I'd have to go and play with the 14s on a Sunday to get game time because I was so little. Uh, but, and I said, well, what was the thing about your mindset that kind of got you through? And he said, well, I look back now and I think about what that taught me to, to persevere, not to give up to re the resilience, to keep going, to be adaptable. Um, and he said, I look back now and I realize what I've learned from it. And then, you know, I'd speak to the parents and I did this with four or five of the players that are all playing Premier League football now. And the parents would say, you know, they just wanted to be with the ball all the time. They were super competitive. They always wanted to win. Um, mm -hmm. One Premier League player's mum said to me, like, if he lost a game of Monopoly when he was eight, the board was going across the room because he had to win. And like all the parents said the same stuff. But interestingly, none of the players said they took it seriously until they were 14, 15 years of age. Before then. Yeah, absolutely. Before then, it was all about because they love playing the game. And they wanted to be with their mates. Um, but they but they all had this um, drive, determination, competitiveness to do well. And one of the questions I asked all of them was, um, were you the best player in your under-18s? And if not, who was it? And not a single one of them said it was them. 
they all were like, no, oh no, it definitely weren't me. It was so-and-so. I was like, okay, well, where are they now? And they're like, well, I don't know really. I don't know if they're still playing. And that was always the case. They were never the best player at under 18. And these are now all Premier League players, established Premier League players that played hundreds of games um, and having a top career. So it's, it's tricky because, you know, so Nathan Redmond was another one who, who was a dot, was a real late developer. Um, but then when you start to piece together his background, um, never met his dad, uh, grew up with just his mum and his mum's sisters and aunties and nans, all female network. Yet he lived on his own at 17, you know, and was playing first team football at Birmingham. Mm. So it, it's just, this is where it's really complex because there's so many different factors involved. You know, the right manager at the right time that gives you the right opportunity um, and your career can go. So Marcus Rashford mm. getting his start by Louis van Gaal because the other players were injured. The next in line were out on loan and then he was the only one left. Um, you know, and he's done all right. So it, it, this is where it's really complex. And then, you know, by the time you get through to professional development phase, you're looking at even more probably, you know, the, the difference between them at that stage physically is a lot less. Technically, tactically, the gap is a lot narrower. You know, you, you'll probably still have some, you know, some outstanding world-class technicians. Um, but again, the ones that, that make, the, make the grade are the bit, the additional bit of the bit between the years. So it, it's really complex. I don't think it's complicated, but it's really complex because there's so many different factors involved and it is so individual. Even just on that, you talked there about it is so individual, so many different factors involved. But there's, uh, it, it, I guess that kind of brings you back to one of the things you talked about earlier. You know, one of your roles is to kind of uh, bring in the education pathway around talent ID and talent development aspects. You talked about the level one, but since then, you know, there's, there's obviously other qualifications come in. Um, you know, I know they've certainly got the level two, and yeah, now, I think they've all got older to level four now. What would those yeah. qualifications So, level one be? was a real simple introduction online to um like i said mums and dads that are running kids teams just to start to help them understand about some of the different factors at play um level two was a bit more scout specific so it was about um relationships how to develop networks communication skills it was about understanding your own values and beliefs um it was about understanding player profiles and you know, the role that you had and what the club may have been looking for. Because even simple things, I went to one club um, when we were rolling out the course, uh, League One club, and you know, we were talking with all the scouts. And I said, well, how do you know what level of player you're looking for? Um, and, and it turned out that the scouts had never been to an academy match. They'd never seen... Uh, footage or training of of the kids that they already had in the club. So they didn't really understand the level. So a, a simple thing for the for the club head of recruitment to do was right, we'll give you we'll give you access to the footage of matches and once a month come in and see the kids play. Because unless they start to understand what they're looking for, it's very, very difficult to kind of benchmark. So that was all part of the level two, along with looking at at talent and potential 
Um, we did one of the tasks was about um, positions as well. So, you know, I did a, a World eleven that was based upon players that started playing in different positions. So, like, Sol Campbell was a centre-forward. Paul Scholes was a centre-forward. Fernando Torres started as a goalkeeper. Um, Carlos Puyol was 17 mm. as a left winger in grassroots football before Barcelona signed him at 17. Then um, they had an injury, so he ended up playing centre-half. Then he plays, you know, 700 games for Barcelona at centre-half. Um, but, but, you know, again, how we, how we could get uh, scouts to look beyond, you know, just because a club manager plays them at centre-forward or centre-midfield doesn't mean you know, that's where they're going to be long-term. So there was loads of these kind of different factors involved mm. in the course. But the big thing really also was was starting to understand the whole player. It was relative age effect, chronological age, training age, biological age, um, recognising this thing called the Matthews effect, which is, uh, you know, if you get early access to good facilities, good coaches, etc., you tend to spiral upwards. But if you don't have them, you tend to, to miss out. Um, so, yeah, so there's lots of those kind of different factors involved, but more aimed at, um, I guess, more intentional scouts, people that were doing it for a, for a, a proper role. Mm. A bit like the football level two is a bit more in depth, I guess. Sure. I guess, you know, you know kind of just taking that information on board, what would your advice be to maybe some of those environments such as grassroots clubs who have maybe not really got um, an idea on, on supporting, supporting you know, young talent and key, the key things to look at in terms of, you know, you sort of their foundation phase, making them fall in love with the game. How, how, how does it, a grassroots club identify whether the maybe a potential scout or whatnot is coming in for the right reasons? Because that's one of the biggest challenges that I've certainly from conversations I've had with grassroots coaches and even even scouts in general, you know that a lot of grassroots clubs are, are reluctant at times to let the let the let the players be seen or taken on by some of the clubs because of some of the you know. Yeah, no, it's, it's well. a really valid point. I think. Um, yeah, it's it's a mixture of things at play, probably. Um, so, the the scouting network. Um, has a bit of a bad reputation and at times rightly so because they don't act ethically. Um, we used to call some of it the dark arts of scouting um, and, and kind of people that operate unethically and, and don't do it correctly and don't follow the rules, etc. Um, so at times I'm not surprised that coaches are a bit nervous about it. Um, However, what I would also say for grassroots coaches um, is it's not about you uh, and it's not about you holding back uh, a young person who could go on and achieve more just because they might help you win the under 12, you know, division three league title. Like, who cares? You know, in the scheme of things, other than the fact that, you know, you can go to work and, and brag about how your under 12s have won the league. It, it doesn't matter. It's not important in the scheme of things. What's more important is helping that young person fulfill their potential. And coaches should take more credit in helping them be able to fulfill their potential rather than worrying about 
what they can or can't win as an under 12 manager. And, and it's, it's helping them really think about why are they doing this? And if, if coaches are genuinely doing it to help young people have a great experience in football, um, they, they should be keen and willing to go, right, look, I'm going to pass you on to X club. Uh, but equally then the professional club, if they do it properly um, and they maintain relationships and, you know, they support their local grassroots clubs, which I think the, some do well, the majority could do better. Um, you know, if that young person decides uh, football's not for them, or uh, the professional game's not for them, or the professional club decide that that kid's going to be released for whatever reason, um, then they will, the professional club helps that young person get back into their local club where they were playing before so that we don't lose people from playing football. That's a really important aspect to it as well. You know, we've got a responsibility as adults and as custodians of the game to make sure we are not the reason that a kid gives up playing football. You know, we should do our utmost to make sure they get signposted back to another playing opportunity that keeps them in the game. Because that kid that gets released at 14, 16, 18, whatever, you know, they're also our next generation of coaches, of referees, of scouts. And we want to make sure that they've had a brilliant experience which keeps them involved in playing sport uh, and ideally a, a football um, because we want to make sure that young people have this uh, lifelong love of, of sport and physical activity and that's really important for the country not just you know uh, some individual professional football club it, it, we, we have a purpose of working with young people that is way over and above just what they think it is about trying to bring a player into their club it's more than that, and, and we have to we have to see that as part of this as well. It's not just the obvious. Uh, no, definitely. I think it is about definitely having a, I guess, almost a last hundred percent. You know, like position, you so. think about you know, I mean, you know kids that you've coached over the years, you know, uh, and what they're doing now. Mm. Uh, you know, one of my <laughs> Um, one of my proudest things that I've, uh, other than the kind of the memories side of things, one of the proudest things that I've, I've given from football was when I left working at Fulham and I've been there six years, I got given a, um, uh, a glass, like kind of pint tankard things, you know, like old people would have in a pub, like, you know, they've got their own one. Right? I got given a glass, one of these and etched on the side, written by the kid, was dear Nick, thanks for making me a better player and person. Right now, that for me is what it's about. And this kid mm. is still playing at um, Premier League club. He's in the 18s. He's played for the first team. Um, he's, he's in the England setup still. Like, but the most important thing for me is the fact that I've made him a better person. Um, and whatever. Whatever he goes on to achieve in his playing career, awesome. You know, and I'm delighted that I, I was able to help him along the way in a little bit. You know, he's the one that's done all the work. You know, any coaches that say, you know, what players have you produced? 
it's a stupid statement to say, other than my son, who I'm pretty sure is my son, um, I haven't I haven't produced a single player, right? You know, they're the ones that have yeah. done all the work. Um, but that's that's for me is what it's about. Yeah. Um, and and all we do is we just help them along their way to get a little bit better at football. Mm. No, no, I, t- I think I definitely agree with you in that respect. You know, it's about you know that common phrase of how many players you produce or who you produce or have you helped. Well, actually, no, we're not helping anyone produce because we're not the only ones that have access to that in- that that individual. So there's going to be so many other facets as to why you know as to how they're developing and why they're developing. And I think for us, it's just having it, having a part in the process means we're helping the development and not necessarily... Yeah, one of the, one of the things I do in my role now is we have a, uh, the UK Coaching Awards every year. And my favourite award, bar none, is called the Coaching Chain. And uh, the last few years, we've had um, like Garant Thomas, uh, Ben Stokes. And what we have on, on stage uh, is their first grassroots coach all the way through to today so like Grant Thomas we had his under nines cycling coach on there and uh, you know and we said to her look you know did you did you think that Grant Thomas would be a Tour de France winner and she was like no he was just like any other eight-year-old kid who wanted to just have fun and then this year's winner was um, Marcus Rashford and so I spoke to to Man United about it and Man United said well who are you going to recognise as coaches? Because there's probably 15 different coaches that have had a role to play. Um, we also then added in an award for uh, his accommodation. So, like, he, he moved out of home at 14 and went and lived in a host family for a few years. Mm-hmm. You know, so Maria, the lady that he went and lived with for a few years, has had a huge role in his development. Um his head teacher, Taran Kapoor, at the school that he went to, Ashton upon Mersey, um, like, again, huge role in his development. So it, you know, it, it always makes me laugh when everyone's like, well, well who have you produced? Like, well, no one. Like, I've got a son. That's it. I'm produced a player, but you know, we've all helped along the way to do some different things for some kids. One kid that one kid that I used to work with at Fulham, um, who got released at. 16, he was a goalkeeper and he was probably never going to be big enough to be a top-level goalkeeper. Um, and he's having a great career in the music industry now. He's a grime artist. Um, like I say that like I know what I'm talking about, right? But he's a grime artist. Um, and he, he said to me that he uses some of the things that he learned from his football experiences, uh, hard work, resilience, drive, motivation, to help him be successful in music. Now, that's success for me. Um, and again, it's something that we should be proud of because we've helped Josh uh, learn some skills that are going to help him in life. And that's still really important. No, I totally, I totally agree. I think, you know, it's this combination of all those life experiences, both as coaches and individuals. And I think it just it is really challenging, I guess, the individual to be more conscious about where the, where the impacts on their journey have come from. Um, so you know, just kind of on that note, you know, just by having this, you know, having this time out of your busy schedule to kind of sit down and talk with me, you know, you've you've made yourself part of the coaches network. So on that note, you know, what is the message that you kind of want to be? I think the big thing for me, you know, and I and I see it now working across 
all sorts of different sports. Um, the big thing for me for coaches um, is firstly be patient with the kids. Um, that's it's really important. Don't it's not about you. Like park your ego. It's not about you. Uh, we did a big piece of research about uh, what makes an effective coach and having an understanding of self, understanding of the individual, understanding of the environment and understanding of your coaching practice. If you get all of those, you'll be on a real, um, real strong foundation to being uh, a high performing coach. Now, even if you're working with seven, eight year old kids, you can be a high performing coach. That means you're just doing a really good job of it. So understand yourself, your values, your beliefs, etc. Have a have a philosophy. Understand the individual. Understand the environment, and understand coaching practice. And if you've got those in place, um, and and we see this across all different sports that we work with at UK Coaching, if you've got these in place, you will be um, a really effective coach. But the biggest thing, you know, that I find if you if you're working with young people, is be nice to kids. But sometimes being nice is telling them a difficult message, right? That doesn't mean that you've got to wrap them in cotton wool. But that is being kind to kids. Sometimes they have to hear difficult messages. But it's how we do it in the right way. And it's all about supporting them to be better people and better performers in whatever sport that they play. Um, so that's that's the crucial message for me. Excellent. And Nick, you know, just for you know anyone that might want to get in touch with you regarding the discussion we've had today or beyond to find out a bit more about what you do or uh, your role at UK. Yeah, Maybe feel free to get involved on Twitter through social media at nlevitt, uh, L-E-V-E-T-T. More than happy to chat through social media. Um, UKcoaching.org is our uh, platform where, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of articles of, uh, of different things of learning on there. The one thing I see from football coaches is a real blinkered view of the world in the sense that um, they try and learn from other football coaches. Uh, what I experience now is so much more cross-sport learning. Like one of the best coach development systems in the country is canoeing. You know, get out of football and go and learn from other sports about what they're doing for uh, the development of, of young people. Uh, so definitely get out of that, get yourself into some different environments and, and broaden your horizons beyond just football. Uh, but yeah, ukcoaching.org, loads of great coaching information there or at and live it on Twitter. I do a blog. I'm, I'm quite hit and miss with my blog, but there's plenty of stuff on there, which is riv uh, riversofthinking.com. So again, there's a bit of stuff on there as well. So uh, yeah, feel free to get in touch. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favourite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care.